¿Quién somos? Coven en Salud de Comportamientos comenzó en 2011 y somos el líder de la carrera de salud y damos ayudas a veteranos y servicios a activos y familias. Nuestra práctica comenzó en St. Louis, Missouri y ha expandido a Agua y California los pasados seis años. Nos gustaría trabajar con ustedes para ayudarles a tener éxito personal y profesional. Hi, I'm Carl Wilson, Doctor of Behavior Health, and I want to welcome you to Covenant Behavior Health. Started in 2011, we've been an industry leader in the mental health field, servicing active duty personnel, veterans, and their families. Our practice started in St. Louis, Missouri, and has expanded with offices in Iowa and California. Covenant Behavior Health is a registered 501c3 agency and we're committed to servicing active duty, military personnel, their dependents, and the local community at large through education and therapeutic services. We blend professional psychotherapy and psychoeducation material in an integrated healthcare setting to assist with relationships, healing wounds of the past, and enhancing our patients' quality of life. Here at Covenant Behavior Health, we are committed to the preservation of families and relationships. Using practical, interactive, and solution-focused approach, we provide support and practical feedback to help our patients resolve current problems and change long-standing behavior patterns. been a very unpredictable, very quick moving year. And so we started strong. And then with the coronavirus, um, you know, there was some barriers um, that impacted this workshop, but we kept at it. We kept plugging away and it's continued to bless many lives in person and via the live stream. So we are looking forward to 2020 year. We have great things planned for next year um, that includes bringing in more licensed mental health clinicians as well as bringing in um, panels for discussions. Um, our focus for next year will be on loss, whether that is the loss of family, loss through death, loss of identity, loss through culture, and so forth. So we will be putting out the schedule in December, and we look forward to having all of you back in 2021. So I want to just give a moment of thanks to everybody um, that has contributed their time for this seminar. This would not be possible for key figures, but first and foremost for Dr. Butler and uh, Bishop Butler now and Pastor Dane Butler. Without their vision, their love and their support and their desire for healing, yes, go ahead and clap for them. <laughs> um, this seminar would not be possible. and. You know, this is a very unique church, and this is a very unique opportunity. Not very many congregations have restoration and recovery, and there is not a lot of the biblical in combination with a mental health um, teaching or approach, and so we're just very grateful that our pastors have blessed us and give us, us the open door um, to, to put this workshop on. And we thank um, Sister Debbie Rowell. She's going to come up in a moment to greet all of you, but I'm thankful for her and her vision because... This was her idea. This vision came to her from God, and 
because of her, um, we are able to meet on a monthly basis. And then for the crew, at the beginning when coronavirus happened, we didn't know what we were going to do anymore uh, because we were so used to meeting in person. But we had the Hurtado family. They came every month to record and make sure that this was put out online. Um, but the one constant throughout this entire workshop was the help and support of Brother Alfredo. And he really believes in this workshop. He is so faithful and consistent. And I'm just so thankful for him and his dedication and commitment to this workshop as well. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to bring up Sister Debbie Rowell so that she could greet you. And so if we could just give her a warm welcome, Sister Debbie. Sorry, I forgot the mic. Um, we are just so thankful that um, that for our pastors and the vision and and the support that they give us, like Sister Sarah mentioned. Um, tonight, uh, Sister Sarah and I would like to um, ask Dr. Wilson and Sister Tina Wilson if you would please come up to the front right here. Um, we are so thankful that you are here ministering our last, our last restoration, bringing, bringing your expertise. We have looked so forward to this. We are so blessed. Um, thank you. Thank you for the, I know it was a long drive, but thank you. <laughs> and we'd like to give you a token of our appreciation from Restoration IPC. Thank you so much. And we look forward to having you next year, too. Just FYI, okay? <laughs> and um, so at this time, you can have a seat. We're going to ask Pastor Dane um, to come. And uh, Pastor Dane has a word before we turn it over to, um, to Brother Wilson. Um, Pastor Dane would like to speak to us just, just briefly. And um, again, we thank you so much for coming tonight, giving up your Saturday to um, come to this seminar. And we pray that it blesses you. God bless.
Amen. Thank you, Sister Debbie and Sister Sarah. They are doing an amazing job with this ministry. In our world today, there are so many hurting and broken people. And a lot of times, we have, um, we have a lot of counseling and support for those who have physical ailments and illnesses and setbacks and difficulties. But there's a lot of times where a lot of the emotional emotional trauma that each of us experience tends to go unreconciled and not healed. And sometimes those scars that you can't see are those scars that hurt the most and the scars that really do the worst damage. And with restoration and recovery, it's a ministry that focuses on those scars that we want to hide from everyone the scars that we're not comfortable with showing because they're not pretty and the story behind them is equally not as pretty. I remember the first time I saw the doctor, my orthopedic surgeon for my wrist, he was talking about the surgery and I looked at him and I said, will I have scars? <laughs> that was my big question because I didn't want my hands to look any worse than what they were and his response was, well, you will, you'll have scars. And uh, for a while, I, I, I worked it to my advantage. I told the story of how I got the scars on my wrist because I was surfing and a shark came out of nowhere. And I put my hand out, and right before the shark could close its mouth, I pulled my hand out. But what is left is a scar on my hand and my forearm. And that, that worked for a little bit. But these scars that you can see on the physical body, yeah, they have a story a story that will constantly remind me of a decision that I made that resulted in a horrible fall, and sometimes I wish I would have never made that decision, but nonetheless, it was a decision I made. And equally, in all of our lives, we have scars like that that are deep within us. And the Lord, when we come to Him, He doesn't want us to just be physically well or emotionally well or mentally well or spiritually well, but He wants us to be well as a whole being every facet of our being to be well and to be whole. And a lot of times we don't deal with the ugly emotional stuff. Sometimes we don't deal with the ugly mental stuff that each of us battles. But really, if I want to be as everything that I can be in Christ, I've got to reconcile those hurts and pains within my life because if they go unreconciled and undealt with, they will generate and cause dysfunction in my life and distort my sense of normality and distort my sense of normal in Christ. So I believe that I believe in this ministry. I believe that going forward, uh, we have seen large crowds. We've seen small crowds. But I do believe that this ministry will impact thousands, multiple of thousands of people um, as we are pouring in and dealing with the real issues of the heart that each, of an, uh, each and every one of us deals with. And so I just want to say thank you uh, big time to Sister Sarah and Sister Debbie for your burden for this ministry because it helps us deal with those issues that we don't like to deal with. And uh, it, it gives us biblical principles of how to apply because, yeah, I can go see a counselor and it's nice to, you know, externalize, but really the only one that can offer me true healing is Jesus. And so... Um, we need to let Jesus heal us. And so that's what this ministry is all about. That's what Sister Sarah and Sister Debbie have been doing. So thank you so much. I look forward to 2021 in this ministry. I look forward to seeing what God's going to do. I, I pray growth. I see growth. I know that God is just going to take this to the next level. And uh, if you're here tonight, keep coming. Keep plugging in. 
maybe this ministry is also for you. There's a lot of help that needs to go on in this ministry, and there's lots of jobs open for you to do. So maybe some in this room will get involved in this ministry and say, yeah, I believe in it. I want to support it. I want to see it do great things. Well, we need your help. We need your support. We need your prayers. And so thank you so much. Love you all. Thank you for being here tonight in Jesus' name. And uh, tonight uh, I was excited to hear that uh, Brother Dr. Wilson will be with us tonight. Uh, he is a very special man to myself and my family uh, because when I was talking about those heart issues and those pain issues um, within our lives, I am not exempt to that. A uh, lot of heart, and even though I didn't have uh, trauma physically, I had trauma in my life that led me to a form of PTSD uh, dealing with trauma in my life, and uh, Brother Wilson was instrumental in helping me process, not only myself process, but helping the situation around me to calm down enough for me to be able to see clearly and reach out for the Lord to heal me. And so um, I just, I'm so thankful that they're here tonight. Brother Wilson, would you please come minister to us tonight? Take your freedom, take your liberty. We are so glad that you're here. Amen. So glad that you did make the drive. <laughs> we love you, and thank you for being here with us tonight. Amen. Thank you, brother. Amen. Let me echo some of what was said tonight, and I want to first give honor to the Spirit of Christ. I want to thank God for the opportunity to be here, uh, for being alive, being in my right mind, for being able to breathe, even though I have fashionable wear you know, you know, to breathe through, but I thank God, though. I thank God for life, for liberty, and the freedom of worship that we enjoy so much in this country. So I certainly want to give you honor, God, tonight, and give honor to the pastors of this great church, uh, uh, somebody who we hold very close to our heart, the Butler family. Uh, we love them all dearly, uh, and so it's so nice to see May here tonight, and we love you guys. We give you honor tonight. And then to the leaders of this ministry, too. These are my partners in crime over here. Um, we have a threefold ministry at Covenant Behavior Health where one of those, I'll just talk about very briefly, we, we train people to do what we do. And so it's always wonderful to find people who are trying to impact lives with the healing power of Christ. And so I believe in helping out any way that we can uh, because that's less work for me. <laughs> so if we can help out and give you the tools to do better, to reach more people, we certainly want to be able to do that because, again, you know, that's less work for us to have to do all by ourselves. So we give honor to the leadership of this ministry tonight. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to come before you tonight i thank you for being the gift and the giver tonight i thank you for your spirit tonight that moves and is preeminent even in this place oh god you said wherever two or three were gathered in my name there you will dwell in the midst and whatsoever thing we touch and agree on will be given of our father who is in heaven and god tonight we bind together we bind together by the spirit of lord and we just push back the gates of hell 
I pray the healing power of Christ will flow like a mighty river. Touch every heart, every seat, every individual, every family tonight. Even over the airwaves, oh God, I pray by the power and the authority of Christ's name, the healing power of Jesus to flow tonight. Oh God, use me as a ready pen to speak your word, to minister God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we just got back in town, we were spent some time the last week uh, in North Carolina. And um, we got in Friday morning, went to work all day. <laughs> and um, we talked this morning. Uh, this is the second presentation of the day. <laughs> talked this morning for five hours straight on uh, the cognitive behavior approach to relationships. So training therapists how to work with people who have problems within their relationship. And then we're here tonight. And I got to tell you, I was in North Carolina for the past week, and I could literally feel and sense the spirit of God. I wasn't, I mean, I was praying like you normally would pray when you're just going through life. You're thanking God. You're being mindful of him and for who he is. But I wasn't in a spirit of prayer. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't prostrate praying. But I could certainly feel the presence of the Lord. So I say that to say that I could tell some people have been praying. And I'm hopeful tonight that what I have to say is impactful and helpful tonight, uh, what we want to share with you. So um, let's talk a little bit about, I'm going to, and I don't know. We, we, we prayed and we asked God. So I don't know if it's, a, is this a, if it's a sermon. I don't know if it's a Bible class. I don't know what it is, but I certainly have some stuff that I want to share tonight. All right. So with this scripture, I want to quote Luke chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. And I'm reading from my favorite paraphrase, uh, the Message Bible. It says that Jesus heard about it and spoke up. Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? I am here inviting outsiders, not insiders, an invitation to a changed life changed inside and out the message bible luke chapter 5 verses 31 through 32 as an educator uh, i'm licensed uh, in mental health i have a license in uh, the states of missouri iowa and california i'm an ordained minister in the united pentecostal church international uh, and this particular topic tonight is something that is very dear to my heart it started last year. I actually wrote an article for a local university and shared it with the publishing house. And they picked up on it, and so they shared it also and published it. And the article was the church started out the church as a hospital. And so, and then, you know, then we refined it a little bit, and we, and we called the article, uh, so we did a podcast on it, the church as a healing sanctuary. And, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. Uh, it is my intention that both perspectives uh, will give some insight, not only as a mental health professional, but also as an ordained minister, will give some insight on what we can do when it comes to treating and helping people of faith who share or may even have a mental health issue. There are many scriptures in the Judeo-Christian Bible that reference the physical and the spiritual body of a church as a place of safety. 
It is a place of refuge. It is a place of healing for the sick, the wounded, the hurt, the lost. And I, I don't want to, I can certainly echo uh, what your leaders have said tonight, what Brother Dane said tonight, when it comes to, yes, those, we used to say back in the day that sticks and stones were what? But words would never hurt me. The biggest lie we've ever told ourselves. Because it is those physical wounds. You can go see a doctor and get sewed up and take some Tylenol for that. You know, but those invisible wounds that go deep into the soul, the marrow of the bones, the psyche of the mind, that's something that's a little bit more challenging to treat. And, and we're not just very apt to sit down and just tell people, you know, everything that's happened to us and what, all that is going on in our lives. We, for the most part, we like to try to keep that on the low, low, <laughs> not share everything because, you, you know, we just don't. It's just natural human nature that we're like that. But the church is supposed to act as a hospital, a place of help, hope, and healing for all manner of diseases. Physical disease, mental disease, spiritual disease. The church is supposed to be a place of healing. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'd, I'd like to submit to you that if we are truly to be an example of Christ in his teaching his words and his deeds, then we need to start looking and acting like a place of help, hope, and healing. If we are really, really, truly to be examples of Christ, Jesus said, I came to invite those on the outside. I didn't come for those who were whole and didn't need a physician. I came to those who needed a physician. How many in this place tonight were able at one particular point in your life to recognize that you needed a physician? Amen. I need them every day, every hour, every minute, every second. I need them. I need them. I need them. Yes, indeed, I need him. I need him to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Amen. Praise God. Uh, as a matter of fact, I am... I'm still saddened uh, this particular article grew out of a pandemic that began to just spiral out of control. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about it as we go on. But the thoughts of suicide. Suicide would even among people of faith. Pastors, pastors' wives committing suicide. We are supposed to be a place of healing and hope and restoration of forgiveness, of open, honesty, transparent. But something is wrong when you have pastors who are the article, the, the one who speaks those words, who delivers that message every day, having to turn to his own thoughts that have turned against him and convinced him that the only solution to a temporary problem is suicide. And so that's how this, this, this particular thing got started here. And, uh, and we had several incidents that took place last year. Famous, prominent people within leadership committing suicide. Pastors' wives. Matter of fact, we had two right here in Southern California. You guys remember? We had two pastors commit suicide. Suicidal thoughts and behaviors affect Every race, every ethnic group, every age, every culture, and every faith. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, ma it doesn't matter if you speak in tongues. 
It doesn't matter if you run the aisles. It doesn't matter where you work. It doesn't matter. We all, at some point in our life, need a healer. And the church is supposed to be that healer. And remember, we're not talking about this physical building. We're talking about what? You and me. We're the church. I'm the living epistle read among men. They'll read me and talk to me before they read any Bible <laughs> or watch a religious show. I'm the, I'm the first line of the fence. You are the first line of the fence when it comes to helping people who need help. Amen? So, if it's present in our pulpit, in our choirs, our small groups, and every facet of life for people of faith, I want to submit to you that it is present everywhere. Everywhere. Matter of fact, um, the World Health Order says that close to 800,000 people die every day by suicide, which means that every 40 seconds, somebody commits suicide. And let's pause. Eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty, thirty-one, thirty-two, thirty-three, thirty-four. 38 and somebody just took their life statistics show that a military personnel takes their own life every hour every hour within 24 hours in a day a military personnel takes their own life they die by their own hands For the sake of privacy, I wouldn't dare mention names or anything like that. But I will say, the recent suicides of people who have faith in God is a direct signal that something is troubling. Something is wrong. Something, we're off somewhere. We're off somewhere as a community of healers. Something is terribly wrong. When people of faith who have the hope living on the inside of them come to a certain part in their life and decide that no longer is that valid, but then they kill themselves. Something is wrong. Would you not agree that something is something that just does not sit right? I can't swallow that. For years, spiritual places of worship have ignored and demonized people who have faith, who, I'm, I'm sorry, who have mental uh, health issues or disorders for years. And that's the reason why I am so thankful for ministries like this. 
I can remember getting started in this field, and it was a very difficult field to break in. I was even told I was practicing witchcraft, talking about the psyche, talking about psychology, counseling. It has been looked upon and sort of pushed away and hidden in the background for so long. And, it, and if we are truly to be a community of healers, helping people no matter where they are, meeting them at the point of their need, then that means that, guess what, we're, we're going to have to talk about some of those difficult situations. We're going to have to address those issues that typically you don't hear from a pulpit. And again, you're so blessed. You are so blessed to have Brother Butler, who is an educated man who does not mind touching those difficult situations. I agree. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. It is just a blessing to have somebody who is willing to, you know what, and say somebody's life is at stake. <laughs> We're going to talk about this. We're going to deal with this. We're going to talk about mental health. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about drugs and alcohol. Yes, people who are saved still struggle with drugs and alcohol. We're going to talk about this. If you think that this is, we are, the Bible says we are a hospital. We are full of people who are sick and broken. So you have molesters in the church. You have womanizers in the church. I mean, this, you have a place. This is a place full of sinners. Amen? The only thing that makes us a little bit different is that what? We recognize that we were sinners, and we turned our life over to God. That's the only thing. The songwriter says that uh, a sinner is just a saint. I'm sorry, a saint is just a sinner who got up, <laughs> who, who recognized that he was down in a miry muck and decided that he needed Jesus, and he would stand up and lift up his hand. So a saint is just a sinner who got back up. All right? All of us are in need. All of us were in, in need at some particular point in our lives. As a behavior scientist who believes in God, I assert that God himself supports and he made science himself. And I like, sis, how you talked about that, you know, we not only just want to take care of the spiritual application of life because there is a spiritual part of life. But just as much as there is a spiritual part of life, there is a physical part of life. And so you can talk about the goodness of Jesus all day long, but if my stomach is growling, I can't hear you. But if my heart is hurting, that doesn't do me a whole lot of good. You need to be able to meet not only my physical needs, my psychological needs, because it's when you meet the person's physical and psychological needs, they are so much ready, more ready and adapt at receiving the good news of Jesus. But it's hard to minister Jesus when somebody is hungry. It's hard to minister Jesus when somebody is hurt, when they're living a domestic violence relationship, and you're talking about, well, you just need to get saved. You need to get baptized in Jesus' name. You need a little bit more than that right now. Not to say that that's not important, because that is equally as important. But we've got to take care of the physical aspects first. So, there is no way that we can have one without the other. I am a firm believer. Science and faith go hand in hand. I'm surprised to find that Judeo-Christian values threaded throughout the theories of counseling. For example, there's one particular approach to counseling that's called unconditional positive regard. 
UPR. And it literally means that you are able to show empathy to the person. Not judging them, simply listening and hearing them and having empathy, not sympathy. Now let's talk about this because sympathy and empathy are two different things. Sympathy is where you, I know what you're talking about. I've been there. I have the battle scars. I have the wounds. I know because it's happened to me. Empathy is I have no idea what it's like to be there. And I'm sorry to see that it's causing you this type of stress or this type of distress. That's empathy. Unconditional positive regard was created by a theorist by the name of Carl Rogers. And it is the basic acceptance and support of a person regardless of what the person says or what the person has done in their past. Now you mean to tell me that he came up with that all by himself? No, he did not. <laughs> he got that right out of the Bible. Who did Je Jesus went to the worst people in the world and made them his team. He went to the outcasts, I mean, people that you wouldn't even be associated with, and he hung out and ate and drank and slept with them, made them a part of his inner circle. He didn't go to the Pharisees. He didn't go to the rabbis and the scholars. No. Jesus went to those most common people who had serious issues is where he went, and he made them a part of his circle. Unconditional positive regard is the ability to share with people, to hear people, and not judge them. And you know the scripture, right? It says, judge not, that you be not judged, because the same judgment you judge, you'll also be judged with. Right? So as a community of healers, we really have got to be able to be able to hear people, to be able to love people in spite of themselves in spite of what they've done in the past, in spite of where they are. If we're going to be a community of healers, then we have got to start practicing unconditional positive regard. Unconditional positive regard is one approach to theory that, that has always resonated with me. Uh, it is an attribute of Christ demonstrated throughout his earthly life. This type of ministry requires us being open, honest, and transparent in our conversations about tough subjects. It's time to start having those hard conversations about mental health, about people of faith, about addiction, about maladaptive behaviors, everything from pornography to overeating to gambling, you name it. Because again, you may not see it. It may not be something that we openly talk about because we're here, you know, and, and, and now we, we, we recognize our sin and we've decided we're going to walk in the steps of Jesus and we're going to progress toward becoming the perfect image of Christ. Now, we're not. You don't become the perfect image of Christ until you're translated from here to there. But meanwhile, you're in this constant struggle. Paul said, I press toward the mark of a high calling. He said, I die daily. You know, that I could be transformed into the perfect image of Jesus. And so here we are. We're all in this together. We're all going through something. We all have experienced something in life. And so when we talk about having that uh, unconditional positive regard, it means us being able to be open and honest about everything. 
Now, let me say this. This is a caveat to that. You have to be careful who you talk to. <laughs> you can't have this conversation with everybody, all right? <laughs> you can't have this conversation with everybody. But you do have to find somebody who you can safely trust in and then have those hard conversations. Listen to me. You are not here by chance, and you are not here by accident. What has happened to you in your life has happened for a reason. It's the cause and effect of science. Everything happens for a reason. There are no accidents in life. Your molestation, it happened for, I know, and I apologize with all of my heart that it happened. But it happened for a reason. The abuse that you suffered at the hand of a loved one, it happened for a reason. And I apologize, and there's no way I can ever take that away from you. But I believe that you can take those horrible things that have happened to you and you can turn them around and you can use them to the glory of God. I believe you can take those Why go through? Why experience horrible things in your life and then do nothing with them? What the devil meant for evil, you have the power, you have the choice to take it and turn it around and use it for something good. And so we all have a story, amen? We all have a story. We all experience some form of hurt. And so if you could take that and in that unconditional positive regard relationship begin to open up and minister and help somebody, if they can see that God did it for you and he's no respect of a person, won't he do it for somebody else? Amen? All right. So in the faith community, we have the talk right. We have the talk right. We talk about being made whole. It's one of our famous words from the pulpit. We talk about being transformed. All right. Uh, we talk about being in the perfect image of Christ. However, this must not be done according to a judgmental standard and belief system. You cannot talk about being transformed and made whole and you're judging people. You can't. It doesn't go together. Unconditional past positive regard is the ability to sit down in front of a child molester who I swore I would never treat. I put it on my list in school. That's one particular population I just will not deal with. I'm paying the money for school. I get to pick and choose who I'm going to treat, right? I'm paying for it. But God spoke to me. And God said, he needs Jesus just as much as you does. If somebody hadn't come along and told you about the, the power of God to save and to bring you out and to change your life, and who are you to keep it and hold it from somebody else who needs him? There are no big sins and there are no little sins. Sin is sin, period, across the board. Now, I know that we, we teach that. We teach there are those little sins and there are those big sins. But I'm here to tell you that the Bible is very clear. Sin is sin. Black is black and white is white. Hell is hot and sin ain't right. God is holy and Christ is coming and righteousness shall prevail. There is no little sin and there are no big sins. Sin is simply sin. It doesn't matter. So if we recognize that all of us are sinners. 
we need to also recognize that all of us are in need of a Savior. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. These judgmental standards and belief systems can cause people to feel shame, guilt, and to be dishonest about what is going on with them. Listen to me, you've got to be able to express unconditional, people have to be able to safely trust in you to open up and share and know that what they share with you, you won't use it as a weapon. You won't out them in front of people. You won't, sh they need somebody that they can bleed on and they'll know that you'll do nothing but take it to God in prayer. If we are to be a community of healers, that is, Right? And that's probably why you're here tonight. Amen? That's why you're viewing tonight, because you want to know how you can help people. You want to know how you can be that community that is open and welcoming to all of those who need Jesus. So, uh, the faith community needs to practice more UPR and less judging, because after all, this is the hospital. You don't go into a, uh, a patient's room and go, what you doing here? What's wrong with you? You got a broken arm. Come on now, get out of here. This is a hospital. You don't go to walk into a, a, a cancer ward and go, what you, what you doing here? Cancer? Well, you're in the wrong place. No. This is a hospital. You're going to run into people who are broken. You're going to run into people who need Jesus. You're going to have people who've been baptized and who are still struggling who are still in that fight to let go of those devices. Now, I know, I know I'm so thankful because I don't see it a whole lot today, but I remember growing up where we thought that the first time you spoke in tongues, that was it, and that was enough. And everything was forgiven and cast away, and you didn't have any more problems. And then you walk out the door, and you're still having temptations and problems and issues, and so now you're starting to question and wonder if you really got it or not. Uh, if you're really truly saved, let me, let me take the burden off of you. You can be saved and still struggle. <laughs> As a matter of fact, you're probably more saved than the person next to you. <laughs> the, the, the enemy does not harass people who don't mean nothing. If there is something beautiful within your flesh, let me tell you, you are going to struggle within that flesh. So the more problems that you have, probably the more work you have to do. So you have to be able to recognize that. You have to be able to be this place, this person of unconditional positive regard. As a matter of fact, the faith and mental health community should join together in cooperation in the battle of removing the stigma of mental health within the faith community. Mental health professionals and faith leaders should be working side by side to provide a safe place for those with mental health disorders to start getting help that they so desperately need. And when I talk about mental health, I'm talking about all facets of it. You name it. Everything from maladaptive behavior to addictions to psychological issues of bipolar, depression, anxiety, it doesn't matter. Anything that hinders and, and, and hampers your ability to be free completely in your worship to God and your focus on him. We should be joining together, working side by side 
to make this place a safe place for people to come. After all, we are the hospital. What surgeon refuses to do surgery on somebody? You wouldn't be much of a surgeon. What Christian that's been baptized with the gift of with for, with forgiveness and been made whole and then refuses to share that with somebody? Who The Bible says those that have freely received, we ought to do what? Freely give. What sense does it make to take it and then to hide it and to keep quiet about it? Anyway, many professionals are trained in treating mental disorders unlike Faith leaders, though, who complete seminary, a Bible school, and typically, uh, I can remember when I went to a seminary, we did not get uh, any counseling. We didn't get any mental health. We just didn't. I mean, I had to actually apply for those. They were called elective classes is what they were called, all right? It's just not something that's commonly given to you when you go to seminary. But I believe that we ought to be working together to bridge the gap between the two communities, which are often at odds. We both are trying to do the exact same thing. We both are, <laughs> we both are healers, and we're trying to heal people. Wouldn't it make just good sense that we work together side by side? having a pastor taking care of the spiritual stuff and then having a mental health professional taking care of everything else that goes along with being human because you're not just a physical being and you're not just a spiritual being. You are a combination of mind, body, and spirit. Amen. I could literally go on all night. So I'm, I, don't have, I do have one, but I haven't looked at it. Let me see. Never invite a preacher who's a counselor to a workshop and have them talk. Just, just bad combination. So, baby, you're going to have to keep me, keep, keep me in line. I can hardly see, but you're going to have to keep me in line here. So, no one should ever be afraid to seek help for any issues, especially within the faith community. And it doesn't matter. Listen to me. It doesn't matter what it is. You should not be afraid to come and seek help. I often would say to couples, do you feel like you can safely trust in your spouse? And if they hesitate, it, my heart just drops. Because your spouse is supposed to be the safest person in the world for you to open up and to share things with. And when I got little ones, I'll ask them, hey, who is that person you can go to, you can open up and share your deepest, darkest things with? And you know what? Nine times out of ten, I don't hear it's my mom. I don't hear it's my dad. I hear it's my, my friend, my boyfriend, somebody who they don't even know on social media, they've never seen before. But we are to be, as parents, the safest place for our children to come to. As spouses, the safest place for our spouse to come to. As parishioners, your pastor should be the safest place for you to go. Without judgment, without shame, without guilt, we should be able. And then, of course, you know, the, thank God for a smart pastor who has teens 
who, who recognizes that he can't do it all by himself, but he has developed people, he has, he has invested in them, and so now you have this leadership team, this pastoral staff, and they should be people that you can go and open up and be honest and transparent with and not have to worry. Listen to me, the way we treat each other, the way we treat, and the Bible says this even, when you've entertained strangers, we just might be entertaining Jesus. So how we treat each other in relationships is a direct reflection of what we think and how we act when it comes to God. How we treat each other, the people who we don't even know, is a direct reflection of our relationship with God. So, if I'm to be this healing place for people, then I got to be this healing place for people. I got to be somebody where people can come, open up and share and talk to me and not have to worry about me using it, what they have to say, as a weapon against them. If we were to combine our efforts and resources together, removing the stigma of faith and mental health, then and only then are we really, truly helping people to become the very best version of themselves. As a voice for those who cannot heal, defend, feed, close a care for the orphan and the widow, the church is responsible for meeting those needs. The church should be a safe place, the first line of defense for addressing mental health issues in today's world. We should be the first place of help and hope for those who need it the most. I got to say, and um, this tumultuous atmosphere that we're in right now, and I'm getting ready to close because trust me, I got about five more pages. So Q&A. So I really got to hurry up and close if we're doing Q&A then. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> But let me say, in this tumultuous atmosphere that we're in right now, where we've been pitted against each other racially, I have been uninvited to places to speak because I'm going to tell you right now, listen to me, all over this world, black lives matter. And that's not an exclusion that no one else matters. But if my house is on fire, why are we talking about your house? As a community of healers, as a community of believers, this should be the safest place for people who are hurting and in need. This should be the safest place. And I'm telling you right now, I am afraid I don't see that. I don't see that, and that is scary. Because we talk about being this community of healers, but we're going to pick and choose. We're only going to help, help certain people. We're only going, this gospel is, Jesus didn't care what you look like, how you sound, what career you had. He simply did not care. He looked at the heart of people, and he dealt with them based upon their need. And I want to encourage you today, 
that if you are going to be a place of healing, you have got to identify yourself. The church has lost its identity. We don't know who we are anymore. We don't know where we stand. I don't know where I don't know where we stand anymore. I don't know where we stand anymore as a church. I'm questioning where we stand as the body of believers. And so if you are going to be this place of healing and restoration for people, you have got to identify yourself, number one. You've got to know that you have a key role to play. Not only identify who you are, people should know who you are. They shouldn't have to guess. They shouldn't have to wonder. They shouldn't have to question. They should know who you are. So number one, I want you to identify who you are. And number two, I want you to know you have a key role to play. You are Jesus. You are his hands, his feet, his mouth, his pocketbook. You are Jesus. You, me and you, we are the Jesus to this world. People look at us way before they see the big man. Amen? Amen. So, as we close out here, um, I want to say thank you again for inviting me to come. Now, you have to have me back next year because, like I said, I got one, two, three, four, five. I have five more pages to go. So this is part one of, (laughs) okay, you got it, you got it, you got it. Is this water for me? I see a water in the front seat. No, it's not. It is. It is not for me. (laughs) Can we get him a bottle of water, please? Thank you so much, Dr. Wilson. Can we just give him a quick round of applause for that information tonight? So good and so helpful. But come on up here. You're still in the spotlight. <laughs> I just want to echo something. I work for a public school system. I work at a, at a district. And in one of our meetings, somebody actually highlighted how the public school system has replaced the church. And he just talked about how the church, we are the living epistle. We are at the front line of defense. He said that we need to meet people where they're at, where their needs are. And at my school district that I work for, every Wednesday there's a food pantry. We have a bins and bins of diapers. We provide things to the teenager that gets pregnant. We provide clothes to the homeless. When one of my client's parents, um, her daughter had an autoimmune disease and she was dying at the age of four years old and they need she couldn't walk anymore she was losing all of her motor capabilities and she needed a stroller i called the district office i need a stroller teenagers failing her pe classes in high school because she has no tennis shoes and nobody's talking to her about that need and so she's staying quiet until we have a mental health session i pick up the phone i need tennis shoes and so i what i'm trying to say is is that, the, is that the public school district has taken on a symbol of, you need help, we're here for you. We have wellness centers now in all of our schools. We have nurses in all of our schools. We have mental health in all of our schools. They are giving so much, and they're telling us 
we have replaced the church. Because back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, people relied upon the church. They went into the church's doors for help to their clergy, to their saints. And so I echo what you say. We do need to step up. There is a problem. I listened to Dr. Gabor Manta. He just highlighted 800,000, you said, individuals die by suicide. That's an astronomical number per year. But check this out. People die from addiction, over 100 deaths a day. We have a 9-11 every month in our country. That's over 3,000 people a month that die just from heroin overdoses, cocaine use. There's a problem and we gotta step up. So thank you for highlighting that need. And we're gonna go ahead and go into our question and answer. But before we visit the online questions, does anybody here have a question for Dr. Wilson? Does anybody here want to ask him something? Okay, so for the live stream, I'm just going to repeat the question. So she has a student who is suffering with anxiety, and she would like to know how she could help her. Well, there are a number of things you can do uh, to be able to help. Typically, um, you know, schools have a nurse or they have a counselor within them. Um, they have those student associate counselors also who are getting their hours. So that's a great resource to use within the schools. But we talk about you yourself. Here's where you want to be careful because legally you're, you're not a practitioner when it comes to the healing arts. But there are certainly things that you can do. Uh, if you have a student in your class who suffers from anxiety, particularly things like panic attacks when it comes to tests and things of that nature, you can practice some very simple mindfulness skills, helping her to be able to identify by closing her eyes five things in the room, providing positive distraction, it lowers the heart rate, it decreases the cortisol, the stress chemical in the brain, and it allows you to be more mindful and present in the situation. So for example, even when you're talking with your kids or you're talking to your spouse, if your brain is running, Just on. There we go. So uh, we we want to be present. Make sure that we are present in that space when we're talking to somebody. And one of the ways you get to do that is by practicing simple practicing simple mindfulness techniques. So have her, for example, take our hand and put it over her heart, and tell her to count each time her heart beats. That decreases the cortisol the adrenaline, and allow her to be able to pay attention to what's going on. For example, if she's taking a test, have her do the same thing, like taking a couple deep breaths and then closing her eyes and listening for the clock ticking, for the cars driving by. Again, it provides that positive distraction where it helps you to be present in the moment. And it's a really good technique for anxiety. Another one that you can use is what we call self-talk, is you talk yourself through it. Describe how you're feeling, have her say it to herself, describe how she's feeling, and then tell herself that I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm okay, I'm fine. And just say it over and over again, because once you say it out of your mouth and your ears hear it, so you have to vocalize it, your heart and your mind will process that. And you'll actually be okay. The power of the word, right? Mm -hmm. The Bible says there's power in the tongue. So that's a couple of really easy ways that I suggest Helping her connect to one of those resources in school, most schools do have them. 
Awesome. As a saint or a minister going through your own despair, how do you continue to do the work of the Lord, wanting you to be faithful to his will and purpose? How do you keep helping others when you feel like you have nothing else to give? Now, that's a tough question. That is a tough question. Even Jesus took time away <laughs> and, and practiced self-care. Uh, I mean, you, you, we are to help people. We are to be there for people, and I think we should do that, but not at the neglect of ourselves. Listen to me. There is an order, and you guys, I've been here before. You guys have heard me talk about it. There is an order to life. God is number one, then you, then your spouse, then your children, then your church, then your family and friends and extended community. So you have got to be okay before you can do anything for anybody else. You've got to make sure you are good. Mm -hmm. Is there another question in the audience? I'm sorry, I skipped you over with the last question. Feel free um, if another question comes up um, to let us know. You mentioned cause and effect. What do you mean when you say it happened for a reason? So we know that Romans 8 and 20 says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Amen? (laughs) That scripture is so ambiguous. It's hard to nail that down. What do you mean? Like, my mom and my mom was murdered. My mom being murdered is working. It's, It's a good thing. It's working for my good. There's sense in that. And then, okay, let's just, not just my mom. But then my father was murdered a couple years later. So how do you make sense of that? How is that, how is that something that, and we know that all things work together mm-hmm. for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to. Let me tell you that you have a choice. Either you can allow life to happen to you or you happen to life. Either you can allow life to happen to you and you can sit there and you can talk about all the horrible things that have happened. And, we're, and we don't want to take that away because they are horrible, terrible things that happen to people every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Wilkinson wrote a book about when bad things happen to good people. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it, it, it does happen. But one of the things we have to do, especially as believers, as a community of healers, is we've got to help people find the meaning of that hurt, the meaning of that loss. That is so incredibly important. When you're helping somebody process through the stages of grief, for example, we've got to help them find meaning in that. Otherwise, it's just life happening to you. One bad thing after another, one lump after another lump. But you have an an option. You have a choice. And the way that you interact and you process that, again, either life happens to you or you can choose to turn that around give it to God, and allow God to get the glory out of it. And that's why I believe there is this cause and this effect for everything that happens to us, is that we ought to take all of those things. The Bible says everything that was made was made by him, and there is nothing that wasn't made by him. And the Bible also says that he makes everything good. He makes everything good. He made you. You are good. The situation that happened to you, it happened to you for a reason, and you have a choice. You can turn it around, and you can make something good out of it instead of allowing life to just happen. I love God so much, and he is my passion. 
And yet, no matter how much I pray, I feel lonely. I feel like I do not fit in within my church community and peer group. Is there such a thing as being lonely as part of your God-given calling, or is this related to my mental health? That is a very good question. Uh, a very good question. Uh, as a community of believers, we know, as a healer, myself as a healer, I run into people all the time who are surrounded by lots of people who have good parents and still are so very, very lonely and isolated. So you can actually be in a room full of people and still feel completely all alone by yourself. What we're missing here is this spiritual connection that goes beyond just, hello. I remember one day at church in St. Louis, I had a little old lady, she walked up to me, she walked by, she was going to the restroom, and I said, praise the Lord, how are you doing? And she looked at me, she says, why you ask that? You don't really know. I go, oh, no, sis, no, 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 no. I stopped her. I said, I, I don't just ask because it's the polite thing to do. I really want to know how we had a conversation for like 30 minutes. Church started and everything, and we're out there in the hall, her and me, me checking in. So when I ask you how are you doing, I don't want just I'm fine, I'm okay. I want to know really how you're doing. And I think we're missing that. We're so busy today that we miss making those human connections with people. It's more than just being there and being in a room. You've got to connect with that person on some kind of level, on a deeper, more meaningful le level. So the question is, do you, is this part of my mental health? Or, and I would venture to say that it is probably more likely a part of the mental health. Mm -hmm. And so I would talk to a professional, reach out to somebody, let them do some screening too. There could be some depression there and then try to find out exactly what that is. And maybe you just don't know how to be in a relationship with people, you know? And you don't have far, that far to look. If you look at your parents, you look at how they socialize, how they interact with people, that's our number one way in which we learn. We watch other people. And it may just be maladaptive. Mm -hmm. And so you may have to be taught how to have those deep, meaningful, open and honest community relationships, okay? How can we use UPR without becoming enablers, especially with those that have personality disorders? This is somebody who's read some stuff before. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about UPR, you can have, you can use UPR with anybody, anywhere. You being, being empathetic to people doesn't mean that you are doormat. It doesn't mean that you allow yourself be, to be taken advantage of. It doesn't mean that you just let go of your morals, your standards, your belief system. You can still have that empathetic ear for people and, 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 and still be who you are without losing that. So when we talk about people with uh, personality disorders, that's a totally different subject. We talk about BPD, borderline personality disorder. You can be empathetic to them, uh, but that doesn't mean you have to go along with everything. You know, you can be empathetic. Like, I'm empathetic to my son. He wants a new car. But unless you got a job, you can't afford a new car. <laughs> yeah, I can be empathetic. My daughter wants a new, she wants a new uh, cell phone. I'm very empathetic. I wish she had a new cell phone. But daddy's not going to buy it. Yeah, so you can be empathetic to people, but that doesn't mean that you become the store mat. Mm -hmm. Did you have a question? 
I love that. I love that question. Absolutely. Thank you. So what's your name? Erica, thank you so much for asking that question. Yeah, so she wanted to know uh, if you come from a, a background, an experience where your mom may have not been the best, when we talk about making you feel safe and loved and respected part of the family, uh, but now that you know you are in that same position, what are some of the things you can do to not be like that or to be a better version of that, right? And I think we all have that as parents. Like, we have this God mission to be a better version of our parents. Not to say that they were horrible or anything like that, because they did the best they could with what they had with where they were. But there's a whole lot of improvement that we can have. And so I think that is an incredible question. I appreciate that so much. And number, the number one thing that you can do is you can identify all the things that did not work growing up. And you can challenge yourself. You can dare yourself to be different and to be better. We tell ourselves that already, but you have to actually put some, 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 some behind it and actually practice that. So for example, maybe you didn't have this open and honest and transparent relationship with your mom, but you start structuring a conversation with your children every evening. So around dinner time, my favorite time to have those deep, meaningful conversations is around dinner time. Sit down and allow the dinner table. And if you don't have one, get one. Allow the dinner table to be a place of open and honest, transparent conversations. A safe place, a healing place, a place where they can open up and share stuff with you that if it happened in the kitchen, you would have knocked them out. But it didn't happen in the kitchen. It happened at the dining room table. So this is a safe space. This is a safe space, and I'm going to hear you, and I'm going to have unconditional positive regard for you. I'm going to listen to you without judging you. I'm going to try to see and understand where you're coming from. But I'm still going to correct you. I'm still going to direct you. And the dinner, the dining room table, is this, is this safe space for you to open up and share. And your kids should know that. You've got, you got to start doing that. All right? And have that conversation. I don't care how young they are. The younger, the better they are for doing this. Make that dining room table, structure that time to have that safe, open, honest communication with them. And now you have these kids. It is the number one protective factor against kids committing suicide. If they find that you are a safe place for them, it's the number one protective factor for them. Okay? Yeah. You had a question? certainly it should be a motivator for you that nightmare okay it should be a motivator for you and I can tell you're talking about it in this open format it is a motivator for you so you don't give up on that 
you continue to pray for him. And more importantly, you live the life before him. You be the gospel of Jesus Christ to him every waking moment of your life. And he will see that. He will respect that. And just like she acknowledged that, he will acknowledge that. And he, the Bible says that our unsaved loved ones, we win them by having that unconditional positive regard towards them. So you just keep doing that. And what's his name? Xavier, in Jesus' name, Xavier. We just have a few more questions. If I go to a church that does not talk about mental health or emotional feelings, what can I do to help my brothers and sisters in this area within my local church? Well, one of the things you can do, of course, is um, have a conversation with leadership. You know, um, a lot of times we, we don't do things because we don't know how to do them. <laughs> so have a conversation with your pastor and your leadership about, you know, hey, this is my passion. Uh, this is my desire. I really feel like the Lord is calling me to do this. No pastor is going to go, no, mm-mm, unless it's really truly. You know, like, let me say this. Thank the Holy Spirit. Nobody just wakes up and wants to do good stuff. Evil, the Bible says we were born and shaped in iniquity and in sin that our mothers conceived us. We are a rotten, evil, nasty, selfish being. Just naturally at the root of who we are. And so I help people say, well, I, I felt like I wanted to pray for it, but I didn't know if it was the devil or if it was me. The devil doesn't want to pray for anybody. If it's you, that's a good sign. That's the Holy Spirit. And so if you go to your pastor and say, you know, I really feel like I want to help people. No pastor in a good mind is going to say, you know what, this is, no, this is other. Who does that, right? If it's something good and it's going to help people, then you want to explore that. You want to flesh that out. And so maybe you can become a lay counselor or think about going to school to become a professional counselor. You know, there's lots of programs that are out there where you can actually get the training yourself and then go to the pastor and present, hey, I really feel like this is my calling. Mm-hmm. And then quote the scripture. The gifts and the callings of God are without repentance, look, pastor. And I really feel like, you know. <laughs> We have three more questions unless there's more within the audience. What can I do or should I do if I know someone that is having thoughts of suicide? Uh, The number one thing to do is to certainly address that issue. Never, ever be ashamed to talk about suicide or embarrassed to talk about suicide. I know there are lots of people, and I hear parents, well, don't don't bring it up to them. What do you mean don't bring it up to them? If they're thinking about it, they're thinking about it. Mm I literally have to train our staff, especially the new students that come in, our associates. Well, I didn't want to ask them if they were thinking about suicide. I said, well, then ask them if they want to kill themselves. You, got, you, gotta have a, you have to have an open and honest conversation with people. You can't dress it up and make it pretty because then they don't know what you're talking about. So if, if you want to kill yourself, then I need to know that. And so you've got to be able to have a real conversation about mm-hmm. that. Absolutely. And so you need to ask them. And if they say yes, then you need to get them resources. 411 is one of those numbers you can call no matter where you are when we talk about suicide. And, of course, you can dial 911 too. You can go to the pastor and talk to the pastor, pastoral staff about that. You can share that. And I think, but you're the number one line of defense for them. 
So you got to start engaging in the conversation, trying to find out like, hey, where are you right now with these thoughts of suicide? Do you have a plan? Mm -hmm. And if they have a plan, you need to take immediate action. Immediate action. You need to call 911. And you need to get, you don't let them as much as you possibly can. Don't let them out of your sight. Don't threaten. Don't, you don't want to use this as a weapon to people on people. But you certainly want to let them know that, listen, I tell people when they come in and see me, and I have to ask that question, are, are you suicidal? Do you have thoughts of wanting to hurt yourself or anybody else? And I'll tell them by law, I'm required to ask you this. It's a dumb law. It's a dumb law that I legally have to ask people if they want to hurt themselves. Because guess what? I'm in this field to help people. And I don't care if you don't want me to help you. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to help you. Whether you like me or not in the end, I don't care. But guess what? You're still alive. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to help you is what I'm going to do. And so I want to encourage you to do whatever it takes. And I think having that frank conversation is one of those ways in which we really deal with that. You've got to confront that. You've got to deal with that. And to echo what he was saying, that is truly the number one myth about suicide is if you ask the question, you are not planting the idea of suicide in somebody. When they're already thinking about it, if you ask it, they're able to externalize. And when they're verbalizing, maybe an hour, two or three later, it's so cathartic for them that you're actually helping to reduce the likelihood of suicide. And he said 411 in Alley County, we have 211, you would call that hotline. We have the... Um, National hotline, 1-800-273-TALK, for those who um, are struggling with thoughts of suicide as well. Yes, and there's so many ways to get help. Texting, uh, uh, so many apps out there that allow you to be able to chat with people if you're having those thoughts. And so we want to make sure those resources are available to them. And if you know somebody, and if you don't know where to go or what to do, then just call me, and I'll tell you what to do and where to find those resources, all right? his name? Jonathan. Lord, in Jesus' name, we pray for Jonathan. We ask that you would touch Jonathan right now. You know where he is. You know the situation and the condition right now, God. And I pray the power, the healing power of Christ to flow over him. I apply the blood of Jesus from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet right now. In the name of Jesus, speak peace, oh God. Bring comfort, Lord God, right now. In Jesus' name, we lift up Jonathan. Amen. Amen. Um, we have two more questions. This goes um, in alignment as well with suicide. What signs should I look for in a person that may be contemplating suicide? That is becoming more challenging to really answer because it's different. It's different. Yeah. That is becoming difficult to ch and challenging to answer because it's becoming difficult uh, to really identify because those cues are different from person to person. I can't remember, we used to typically say if, and I, and I am still concerned, it is a big red flag, so I'll give you some really big ones, okay, to look mm -hmm. for. Uh, if they're giving away possessions, uh, things that they hold value, 
and they're giving them away. If they're calling you and trying to connect, uh, and really in a way to sort of find closure, to say I'm sorry, to ask for forgiveness, uh, those are signs that somebody could possibly be contemplating suicide. Of course, there's other signs, too, though, for people. Maybe they're having a change of heart. Maybe the Holy Spirit is touching them. But when we talk about suicide, though, uh, I think it can vary from person to person. Uh, it has a lot to do with cultural background also. But when we talk about some of those big signs, though, number one, giving away possessions. People who were sad, and now they are elated. They've been very depressed, moping, crying for a long time, and now all of a sudden they act as if nothing has happened. They are happiest as can be, and that's probably because they've already terminated within their brains that today is the day. And so now they, they're no longer struggling with should I do it or should I not do it. They've made the decision to do it. They have a plan made out on how they're going to do it. And that brings you so much relief, mm -hmm. you know, because you're no longer having to sort of vacillate back and forth mm -hmm. about it. Your mind's made up. Yeah, so those are three things I, I certainly will look for. And then I'm going to tell you again, going back to ask. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. Suicide, it's becoming more and more what he's identifying is very multidimensional now. It's not so linear. It's not A follows B. It could be for a myriad of reasons that somebody mm -hmm. takes their life. Um, and the youngest case in our country is that of a little girl named Savannah who was seven years, no, she was six years old, and she hung herself. Um, and there were no preceding factors there, at least that the parents could identify. Um, so I concur with what you're saying about suicide. The last question of the night is, how would you counsel a couple when one of them has addictions and has caused great mistrust? What are the steps to practice UPR? Well, of course, you, you still, no matter what, you practice UPR. But if you're counseling or mentoring a couple uh, and one of them have an addiction problem, I can tell you best wishes because that's going to be a hard mountain climb. They need help. Addiction should always be treated first. You have to address that offensive behavior before you can ever get to the root of the violation of trust or anything like that. The addiction has to be addressed first. Now, and I am a firm believer that you can do that on sort of a dual, or you can have them one-on-one -on -one in individual therapy, but then he certainly needs to be in rehab, needs to be in treatment, and working on his addictive behavior. Number one, you've got to take care of that addictive behavior. There are two types of personality presentations that we have commonly for people. Either they are un onion, presentation or they are a garlic presentation and the onion presentation is really when they typically hurt themselves they you know depression anxiety it, it, it doesn't really hurt anybody else but when we talk about the garlic presentation that is a very offensive so think about eating an onion versus eating some garlic if you eat an onion it bothers you for a little bit but then it goes away it doesn't really affect anybody else but if you eat garlic you're like whoo wow you just have garlic for breakfast, you know? It, it's really offensive. And so addiction is one of those garlic behaviors that is very offensive. You have to deal with the addiction first. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Anybody in the audience have a question? All right. Can um, yes, Rachel.
yeah, there is a great program that's out there. Um, I actually adopted, I developed a faith-based addiction program called Restore. And I used to teach it and certify uh, people in it. Um, but one day in the military, I ran into a program called Smart Recovery. S-M-A-R-T, Smart Recovery. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with it because it doesn't have, it's unlike anything you've seen out there in today's field. Uh, and the military has really adapted it. DOD, Department of Defense has adapted it. So now you see it in the VA, you see it in any government institution, you really will find uh, smart recovery on the rise. And AA and NA sort of, and don't get me wrong, AA, NA are what we call evidence-informed approaches. So they've helped millions of people. But then you have lots of people who don't ascribe to this higher power ideology. All right, where, you know, for example, there's Celebrate Recovery, which gives you the more faith-based, uh, you depend on God to do for you. Uh, but I like Smart Recovery because Smart Recovery, it, we, we don't discourage having faith or believing in God, but what we do is we teach you. This is your problem. This is your issue. You picked it up. You need to put it down. And, 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 of course, you know, when we pray at the altar and we ask God, and, and God, he is a miracle-working God, and he will deliver you instantly, sometimes, from cigarettes and alcohol. But most of the time, God does not do an instantaneous miracle. Mm -hmm. You are a work in progress. And so you cannot expect for God to do for you what you won't do for yourself, Okay. So I like smart recovery because it gives you the tools, you know, and it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't discourage God or anything like that, but it's really about you pick this habit up, you develop this maladaptive approach to life, so we're going to give you the tools to become a better version of yourself using CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, and it's rooted within REBT, rational emotive behavior therapy, which is based within unconditional positive regard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, good. so smart recovery. It's online. We actually have a group that's online. If you go to our website, Covenant Behavior Help, this is a plug, covenantbehaviorhelp.org, uh, you'll find a link there. You can search Smart Recovery online, and you'll find online sites to you. They're all over the world. You can actually go face-to-face, -face or you can do it online. But we, of course, right now, because of COVID, we only offer it online. Mm -hmm. So that's, what, that's how they don't believe in God. They you know, don't believe in the whole mental health thing. We really approach it from, it's a self problem. It's a self-management problem. You need to learn to manage yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Going back to, and maybe there's some confusion here. Two things. Number one, we also have a support group for family, uh, for family and friends they can come to for Smart Recovery too. So Smart Recovery has the participants and then it has the family and friends group. They're both very, very good groups. Um, unconditional positive regard, let me make this clear. It doesn't mean that you are a doormat. Because you have empathy, listen to me, we are to love the sinner and hate the sin. Mm -hmm. Unconditional positive regard 
says, listen to me, I understand this is a problem for you. I see that this is causing you distress. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't make it okay. Right? And so I, I want to make that very clear that when we talk about having this unconditional positive regard, as Jesus had, you, Jesus was upset, but Jesus, I mean, Jesus was this very kind and meek person, but there were moments where Jesus had to raise his voice and turn things over to get people's attention, you know, and we don't like to highlight that a lot, but, you know, you, you've got to be able to, again, meet people where they are and understand that in that process of meeting people where they are, you have got to be good first. So you can't let people talk to you any kind of way. You can't let people treat you any kind of way. You have to demand that for yourself, all while simultaneously helping them and having unconditional positive regard for them. So having unconditional positive regard doesn't mean that you become a doormat. It doesn't mean you are enabling. There's a thing that's over-functioning and under-functioning in people's lives, and it's optimal. So over-functioning is when we do for people what they should be doing for themselves. Under-functioning, which is really where we sort of step back and we allow free-range free-range approach, where we just let kids sort of raise themselves, you know, and say, well, I don't want to tell him to brush his teeth because I want him to sort of decide to do that on his own. I don't want to tell him to go to church because, you know, I want him to choose God for himself, you know, that kind of thing like that. Uh, but then you have optimal functioning, and this is where you have that right combination of being there for people, supporting them, but not enabling them, not doing for them what they should be doing for themselves. And so you got, you got to be firm, fair, and consistent. Firm, fair, and consistent. FFC. Okay, can we give Dr. Wilson a round of applause? Thank you so much for blessing IPC with your time and your um, lesson tonight. And for all of you who don't know, I know he highlighted it very briefly, but he and um, Sister Wilson, they do have their own practice called Covenant Behavioral Health. I do believe they're still taking on clients, right? So on the live stream, we're here within the church. If you all want some psychotherapy, uh, we could refer you to the Wilson. So thank you, everyone, for coming out tonight. We look forward to having you join us in the year 2021. God bless each and every one of you, and enjoy the rest of your evening. Have a good night. Hi, this is Dr. Wilson with the High Desert Professional Counselors Group. Our chapter meets every second Saturday of the month. We are meeting completely online now from 9 to 11 a.m. For more information about joining one of these trainings that we offer two CEUs per training, you can visit our website at www.covenantbehavioralhealth.org.